God with us, revealed in us. Emmanuel. What a great promise. What a great proclamation. What a great hope we have. It's good to be home. 68 years ago in this town, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And this is my home church. And you are my people. And some of you I know. Some of you have known me all my life long. Some of you are new to me today. But I am glad to be here. Thank you, Pastor, for inviting me to be with you on this day. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Our Heavenly Father, what a great hope we have. Because you are not only creator of all things, along with your Son and the Holy Spirit, but you are also the God of redemption, the one and only. Yes, our great hope. You have blessed us in the past. We anticipate that you will continue to bless us in the days ahead. Father, may we live in a way that would allow others to see you revealed in us. Bless us this day for having been here and for having joined together. We pray for our good and your glory. Amen. May the 23rd, 1939 was one of the bleakest and darkest days in U.S. Navy history. It was on that day during its final test run that the USS Squalus, the newest of the Navy's S-type submarines, was out to do the final shakedown. But because of a mechanical malfunction, as they started to take the dive, the cold waters of the Atlantic rushed in and the ship began to sink to the bottom of the ocean. 26 submariners in the two aft compartments died within minutes. 33 sailors in the aft compartments, in the forward compartments, knew that their lives were over. Uh, the water was able to be sealed off so that it couldn't get to them, but they knew, despite all they had gone through to fight down the claustrophobia of living in a steel tube in the water, uh, they knew that when a submarine sinks, nobody survives because they run out of air in just a few hours. One of the sailors, in desperation, took a can of oil, poured it into the toilet, and flushed it out so that there would be an oil stain on the water, thinking 
we will not be rescued, but our bodies may be able to be recovered so that our families can bury us. As word went out of the sinking, a number of Navy ships began to converge looking for the place and finding it. After several hours, they were able to send down a deep-sea diver. He located the sunken submarine, and as he made his way around it, he could hear tapping. Someone had a hammer and was tapping on the side of the sunken ship in Morse code. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? As the minutes and the hours went by, the tapping became fainter and then stopped altogether. All hope was lost. Have you ever asked that question? Is there any hope? Maybe you're asking that today. I suppose we have a reason to ask that. Maybe it's a health issue. I see my friend down here battling once again with cancer. Maybe it's a slow progressing dementia. Maybe it's a struggling or broken marriage or an estranged child. This has been a tough year. Many people have lost jobs and they wonder, is there any hope? Will there ever be recovery from this? After 36 and a half years, my job at Dallas Theological Seminary teaching preaching has ended this year. My writing curriculum and teaching at my home church for 30 years has ended this year. And I wonder, what's next? What will the adventure bring? Some of us have lost loved ones after a way too long struggle. My mother died just about six, seven weeks ago, a member of this church for decades. And others have lost loved ones. And the question might be there, is there any hope? You have a governor. You have a newly elected president. And as I drive down the roads of this area, I see a lot of Trump signs still out. And I'm sure a lot of people are asking, is there any hope for our country, for our state? Will we ever recover? Or are we on a downhill slide? Well, I'm here today to tell you that there is a word that I want you to hold on to. It is a single word. That word is Emmanuel. 
It's three words in Hebrew, emma, with, nu, you, or us, el, God. God with us. Yes, it's a Christmas term, but it's a year-long term. It's a lifelong term. And I want to show you some of the significance of that term today because it's a word that gives hope. We're going to look at two passages today, Isaiah chapter 7, and then we'll turn to Matthew chapter 1. And as we look at those two passages, we're going to answer the question, what did Emmanuel mean to Ahaz, the king of Judah, as spoken by Isaiah? And then, what did the word Emmanuel mean to the early church as spoken by Matthew? And then we'll ask the question, what does Emmanuel mean for me today? Chapter 7 of Isaiah introduces us to a crisis moment. And that's what we're talking about. What happens in the moment of crisis? Is there any hope? Ahaz was the king of Judah. And the enemy to the north, his brothers, Israel, the northern kingdom, had allied with Syria in order to attack Judah and Jerusalem. And the question that Ahaz was asking, the question that the people were asking in Judah was, is there any hope? And God sends a message through his messenger, Isaiah. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Israel, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king, I'm sorry, the son of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, they came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Years before, Israel had divided. We, we, we sang the song this morning about bringing unity, bringing people together, and when the king comes back, there will be unity. Uh, that was not happening among God's people in that day. There was the southern kingdom, there was the northern kingdom, there was antagonism between them. And when the northern kingdom allies with Syria, that becomes a very serious threat to weaker Judah. In fact, they had no hope of winning a military battle. But the summary statement here of chapter 7 is that when they went up to attack, they could not win a victory because God's going to intervene 
for them. But in the meantime, Ahaz is fearful. Look at verse 2. When the house of David, that is when Ahaz the king, was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's another name for Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. His knees were quaking. His hands couldn't stand still. He was shaking out of fear. He was thinking, we will be crushed. We will be defeated. I grew up in this town. I have lived in this country all my life long, and I have never known what it is to fear the threat of invasion. I have never lived day by day with the fear of bombs being dropped, rockets being shot overhead. I, I've never lived in that fear. I have lived in security. I have no idea what the king was facing in this situation. But I've had my troubles. I've had times when I've been betrayed. I've had times when I have been lied about. I have been through health issues and relational conflicts. And you know what I'm talking about when you say, or when I say, we know what it is to go through trouble. Uh, the question is, how do we respond in that time of trouble? Ahaz is responding in fear because he ha knows he has no hope on his own. And in that moment, God speaks to Isaiah the prophet and says, you go to the king. I have a message for the king. It is a message of hope. It is a message that the remnant, a remnant, a believing remnant, will survive. Verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shir Yashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field. Go out into a public place and there meet the king and give him this message. Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That is, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, because of Syria and Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, they have devised evil against you. They have said, let us go up against Ju Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and let us set up a puppet king to Beal in the midst of it. I, I love those words. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. 
Years ago, there was a sitcom, it was called The Bob Newhart Show. He was a psychologist. And people would come to him with their troubles. They would say, I'm worried about one thing or another. I'm struggling with one thing or another. Do you all remember his advice? Stop it. Just stop it. That was his advice. Isn't that good advice when you're in trouble? Somebody telling you, just stop that. Well, this is essentially what uh, Isaiah is telling Ahaz. Just stop the fear thing. And there was a little clue as to how he could stop the fear thing. It's in the name of Isaiah's son, Shir Yashuv, which, that's a great Hebrew word. If you would translate that into English, it means a remnant will be delivered. A remnant will survive. And that's really the message of Isaiah to Ahaz. The message is this. It's, it's a double-edged sign that's going to be given to Ahaz, and it's a sign that says on one side of the sword, those who are faithless will come to ruin. Those who are faithful will be rescued. For the faithless, the doubting, the unbelieving, there will be judgment and ruin. But for those who put their trust in God, there will be deliverance. They will survive. They will be a remnant. He says in the following verse, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. This defeat for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, Israel, will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. God is saying, within 65 years, the northern kingdom, Israel, will come to ruin because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience. This was a prophecy that came true. He says, your enemies are like two smoking stumps. I love driving through Allegan County, seeing all of the woods, seeing all of the farmland, seeing the lakes. Went to South Haven yesterday, saw Lake Michigan. As I drove through the fields, I saw some stumps in fields. And I know what happens. You know, you chop down the trees, you try to clear the land, but the stumps are left, and you have to try to get rid of those stumps, and sometimes burning is a way to get rid of them. And what happens is you start a little fire in there, and it just smolters. It just smolters. And that means it's dying away. And God says, your enemies will die away if you trust me. He says, if you are not firm in faith, 
you will not be firm at all. Look at it again, the end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, if you do not stand in faith, you will not stand at all. Stop your quaking, stand firm in faith. And then again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as the grave or high as heaven. Deep as death, high as the glory of heaven. Ask for something miraculous. Ask for something supernatural. Let me give you a sign. Let me give you an indication that I will be faithful. And look at Ahaz's response. Verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. If you know a little bit about your biblical history, you know that he was quoting Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and there Moses told Israel, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't be a doubting people. And Ahaz is going, oh, Isaiah, Isaiah, don't ask me to go against the scriptures. After all, the scriptures say, oh, I should not put God to the test. But this was hypocritical. When God says, you can test me, then we should go ahead and invite the test. But he doesn't do that. And the reason he doesn't do that is because he has his own plan. He's shaking like a leaf, but he's not going to trust God. We know from 2 Kings chapter 16 and from 2 Chronicles chapter 28 that his plan is to go to Assyria, the enemy of Syria and Israel, and make a deal with the king there, Tiglath-Pileser, to come and fight against his enemies. He has a better plan. And so he says, I don't need God's help. I look out at you people today, and I go, you would never say that. You would never say, I have a better plan than God's plan for my life. I, I, I think I'll cheat to pass this test. That's a good plan. I think I'll lie to get a promotion. That's a good deal. Uh, sometimes we think we have a better plan. And that's where Ahaz is. He says, I won't walk in God's path I will make my own pathway. I will call good, good. I will call evil good if I think that's going to serve me. He doesn't trust God. Isaiah sees right through his hypocrisy, and he says in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, hear King Ahaz. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Remember, it's a double-edged sign. On one side, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. A young woman in the court of Judah, at that point, unmarried, a virgin, will soon marry and have a child, and will call that child Emmanuel, God with us, God with his people. And those who believe in that, and those who trust in that, will be the remnant that is rescued, those who are delivered. But, look at verse 15, here's the other side of the sword. He will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land of those two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, uh, from the days the, the people of Israel divided and split into two kingdoms. Nothing like this will have happened before, and it will be the king of Assyria, the very one that you are planning to make an alliance with to protect yourself. Tiglath-Pileser is going to come down and destroy you before this child is about 12 years old, old enough to distinguish between good and evil. He will live in poverty. He will eat curds and honey. That's kind of like bread and water. That's just basic sustenance. The economy will tank, the military will fail, and your country will be destroyed. If you trust me, you will be rescued. If you trust your own plan, you face ruin. What does Emmanuel mean? Emmanuel means either rescue or ruin. And that is determined by our response. A response of faith or a response of faithlessness. Ahaz chose faithlessness. He decided to go his own way. And in going his own way, eventually his kingdom was destroyed and Judah was eventually taken into captivity. Ahaz was not the first failure of the Old Testament. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. David the best hope Israel ever had failed. All of us fail to trust God fully, to allow him to be revealed in us to the world. We fail. And we have no hope in and of ourselves. 
The only hope is God with us. And that was the hope of Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and rescue captive Israel. Not only captive to Rome, but even greater captive to sin. And God knew that we needed a savior, a rescuer. And so we leap 775 years into the future by turning to Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, we move from the prophet Isaiah to the apostle Matthew, who is writing to first century Jewish believers who have placed their faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. And they have said, if he is indeed the promised Messiah, the Christ, if he's the king of Israel, where is the kingdom? It's like John the Baptist will say later in Matthew, wait, 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 wait. I thought you were the promised one, but here I am in prison. I thought I'd be in the palace by now. And Matthew is writing to explain what happened there. When Jesus came, he was rejected by Israel, and so the kingdom has been postponed, and the message has gone out to the nations. God is the Savior not only of Israel, he is the Savior of all people. And so Matthew begins in chapter 1 by saying, yes, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the king. He is the son of Abraham. He's Jewish. He is the son of David through whom the ultimate king will come. He is the Jewish king. And then he goes about demonstrating Jesus' qualifications. And the first qualification is that incarnation where God becomes a human being, a man. And we read about that beginning in Matthew 1 at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Twice, so that we don't miss it, we understand that Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. His birth wasn't miraculous. It was a common birth, but his conception was miraculous. This was absolutely necessary. This process of conception was necessary 
so that the eternal God creator could become redeemer because God and God alone could pay the penalty for our sin. And so through this miraculous conception, Jesus comes to earth. Verse 21. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. The process, conception by the Holy Spirit, the purpose to save his people from their sins, not just Israel, but the entire world. Jesus, Joshua, means Savior, Rescuer, Deliverer. God is fulfilling his promise of Emmanuel, God with us, in order to save us. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken through the prophet. Which prophet? Isaiah? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. This was no small thing. The gods of the Greeks and Romans, the false gods, the made-up gods, were, were, were supposedly up there. They were transcendent. They never entangled themselves with the affairs of humankind. But this God comes down from glory, from transcendence to eminence and intimacy to mingle with us in our struggles, in our pain, in our trouble, to be betrayed, to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sin so that he can rescue us from the consequences of our sin, eternal death, so that we can enter into heavenly glory, stand righteous before a holy God, and to empower us in this life to represent him. This is the sign that was given to the church, the sign that Emmanuel has come. God is with us now. The submariners were there at the bottom of the North Atlantic. There was very little hope. Admirals and wives and sailors and sweethearts had, had hoped only that that submarine could be lifted up and bodies recovered. And then Charles Swede Momsen appeared on the scene. He had been working for years on a system to rescue sunken submariners, none of which had ever survived to this point. He had 
constructed a bell-shaped deep diving instrument that would go down into the depths, uh, land on top of the submarine escape hatch with a suction system, uh, become airtight so that the submarine escape hatch could be opened, and a few at a time, the sailors could go into the rescue capsule and be lifted up. This had never been accomplished before. This was an experiment in the making, but Momsen came down into the depths in order to rescue all 33 submariners. Tragedy was turned into triumph because somebody believed that it was possible for a deliverer to save these lives. There are so many analogies, so many examples of what God has done greater to the infinite degree in order to save us. God is with us. It was a double-edged sign to Ahaz and Judah. The faithful will be rescued. The faithless will face ruin. It was a sign to the church that Emmanuel has come. And so the question is, as we sit here in the year 2020, with all of our challenges, with all of the changes that have taken place, with the troubles that we're still going through and trying to figure out, how do we respond to this message? This message of hope on this first Sunday of Advent, which is the Sunday of hope, how do we respond? I suggest three things to you. First of all, you trust the deliverer. You trust Emmanuel to rescue you. What this means is, if you have never acknowledged your sin, your waywardness, your rebellion, your separation from God because of that sin, it means to acknowledge that today and to entrust yourself to the Savior the one who came down, the one who died on a cross, the one who has been resurrected and ascended back into heaven, the one who is able, able to deliver you. And trust yourself to him. He is your only hope. But it also means to trust God's deliverance right now and in this life because this life is still a battle. And we still have the choice of going our way or God's way. And to choose God's way to walk in his paths means that we trust him more than we trust our own inclinations. Secondly, we take this good news 
into the world. We sang about that this morning. Taking this good news into the world. God with us, revealed in us. How we live, what we say, makes a difference. People watch how we live. And without becoming legalistic, God calls us to live holy lives. And, and as we live those holy lives, the hope of Emmanuel shines out into the world. Thirdly, I want you to celebrate Jesus. Celebrate Emmanuel. Maybe with a fuller heart than you ever have before in this year of trouble. Trust him. Take his rule to the world. But celebrate the great hope that we have. I grew up, as I said, in this church. I was baptized. I was ordained in this church to the ministry. And I have had a good life. I have had a blessed life. It's been a great life. It's been a great run. But things are changing. Two jobs gone. Not only loss of income, but loss of vocational joy. Thank you for having me here today, this first Sunday. This jobless man is now able to preach on this Sunday. God knows what's in the future. I've known troubles. I've known God's blessing. I look forward to what the future holds, and I want to do it trusting God and walking in his ways. In these days, as we listen for the bells on Christmas Day, we may, like Longfellow, have suffered grievous losses. Longfellow lost his wife in a fire. His son was injured in the Civil War. And he, he struggled with the evil that was in the world that tended to drown out the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then he heard the bells on Christmas Day. And everything changed because Emmanuel has come.